There are two texts of Scripture. One is found in the 49th Psalm. It's right in the center of the Bible, depending on how much concordance you have, of course, and all that stuff in the front. But I think you can find Psalm 49, and I want to read beginning at verse 16, two verses, 16 and 17, and then one verse of Scripture from Ecclesiastes, which is just two books beyond Psalms. Psalm 49, beginning at verse 16. This is the reading. Do not be afraid. Do not be overly anxious or uh, concerned when a man becomes rich. When the glory of his house is increased, for when he dies he will carry nothing away. His glory will not descend after him. And chapter 5 of Ecclesiastes, verse 15. As he had come naked from his mother's womb, so will he return as he came. He will take nothing from the fruit of his labor that he can carry in his hand. That he can carry in his hand. What do you know about your birth? I know you probably don't remember a whole lot about it. But what have you been told about your birth? I was told that I was born in my mother and father's bedroom in a little house out in West Texas. And the day I was born, it was coming a driving rainstorm. Now, that's not that important, except that that was the first rain they'd had in Knox County that year. In September... (laughs) They got this rain on the day I was born. I don't know the significance of that, except maybe it means that I'm a drought breaker, or it could mean. It could be an omen that I'm going to live my life, you know, kind of under a cloud like that guy in Little Abner. Have you thought much about your death? Psychologists say that the hardest thing to do is get a man to envision himself in his own casket. I can remember when I was in about the third grade, my girlfriend quit me. I mean, she left me flat out for this kid who had just moved to town, had all these pimples on his face, and I was just crushed. I thought I was going to die. I wish I could die. Then I got to thinking, if I did, it would serve her right. And uh, I envisioned myself in this casket lying there so peacefully. Everybody's crying, taking on. And in comes Becky. She's hysterical with sobs. And she throws herself down on my casket and begs me to come back and tells me that if I'll just return, she'll love me supremely for the rest of her life. Now, don't you tell me that in your childhood, in moments of self-pity, you haven't had the same kinds of fantasies. You have, and I know it. Uh-huh. This verse of Scripture shines a spotlight right down on birth and death. It makes a bold statement that a man comes into life with nothing in his hands, and that's the way he leaves. It tells us that when we arrive on the scene, we bring nothing with us, and that's the way we leave. But if we come with nothing in our hands, where did we get all of this? All of this affluence, 
all of this time that is on our hands, all of this sunshine we soak, and all this love we share, and all of this wealth we enjoy. Where did it come from? And if we're leaving with nothing in our hands, doesn't that mean that the most important question in life is, what am I going to do with this life? and with the things that have been given me while I'm here. I guess you could say that we are really in the middle. We know that we are created in the image of God, and that means that we're spiritual. But we also know that we are created from the earth to live on the earth, and therefore we're material. And so how do you reconcile dust and deity? And how do you cope with being both material and spiritual? And the question that Christians struggle with all of their life is, how in heaven's name am I going to deal with earth things? Well, the answer to that is this. We are either, we are either managers of what we receive when we get here, or we are embezzlers of it. We are managers of that which has been kind of alone to us. If we come empty-handed into the world and we get something when we get here, it must belong to someone else, and we've been given the management of it. As a matter of fact, we are managers, and like any good manager, we're responsible to the owner for that which belongs to him. And if we could go back to the Garden of Eden, to the place of beginnings, and we could knock on the gate and talk to Adam, we might say to him, Man, what a place you've got here. Do you own all of this? I've never seen anything like this. Is this yours? He'd say, no, I don't own this. Well, who owns all of this? He'd say, God owns it. And we've, if we should say to him, then take me to the manager of all of this. I want to talk to him, he would say. You're talking to him. You're looking at him. And that's the correct way God wants us to look at things. He wants us to see that we're managers of that which really belongs to him. And it really does. If you turn to the 50th Psalm, you can hear God's voice in that Psalm. And He says, Every living thing is mine. The cattle on a thousand hills are mine. I know the songs of the birds, He said, and everything that moves is mine. And if you turn to the 94th Psalm, you'll read those majestic words, Great is our God and King above all gods. And the center of the earth is in the hollow of His hand. And the mountains are his also, and the seas, for he made them, and his hand formed the dry land. And if you turn to the prophet Haggai, he would say, As God speaks through his voice, the silver and the gold are mine. We're managers, that is, we're stewards. Carl Bates was traveling across the country on a train in the dining car. There was this black man dressed up, really dressed up, fixed up nice, serving tables, and he asked him, Sir, what is your title? He said, I'm just the waiter. There was another man standing nearby who was really dressed up. He had cards all over his arms and little metals. And he said, what is his title? He said, he's the steward. And Carl Bates said, well, what is a steward? And the waiter said, oh, a steward is a man who takes care of the boss's business to the end of the line. That's exactly what we are. God has given me this life and this body to live it in, and yet it's really not mine. God could close His hand on my breath, and I would not have another one. I'm just here to take care of it to the end of the line. And God has given me some time. I've had 45 wonderful years to live. I've had a lot of time, but it's really not mine. God deals it out to me a breath at a time, and I'm just to take care of this time 
until the boss man requires it. And God has given me three wonderful children, but they're really not mine. The psalmist said that the fruit of the womb is his reward. God has just loaned them to me to take care of. They're the bosses. I'm to take care of them to the end of the line. I'm a, I'm a steward. I'm a, I'm a manager. Or I'm an embezzler. I read recently of a man in Hamburg, Germany, who had stolen everything he possessed in a series of 84 thefts. Everything he lived in belonged to somebody else. He had embezzled it. He stole it. Every brick in the, in the house, every inch of the uh, masonry, every thread in the carpet and drapes, every stick of furniture, every pane in the window, he had embezzled, he had stolen. He even admitted that the flowers that were blooming in the garden, he had stolen. Everything he owned, he, everything that he enjoyed, he enjoyed at the expense of someone else. He had embezzled it. He had stolen it. And, such, and that parallels the spiritually criminal behavior of many men and women who day by day accept the blessings and the things of God. They enjoy His air. They breathe it. They enjoy His sunshine. They enjoy that. And they never give nothing in return. And I heard about a parable of a man who was approached one day by a thief disguised as a beggar. And this man was so moved by the beggar's plight, not knowing he was a thief, he reached in his pocket and he said, I have $10, my friend. I feel sorry for you. I think I can give you 90% of it and keep 10 for myself. I think I can make it fine. But the thief was so troubled by the dollar that he did not have that he beat the man and robbed him of the dollar. And that's the attitude in the parable of a person who lives by the grace of God and accepts God's life and God's blessings and yet withholds the 10% that God asks to be returned. I'm a, I'm a partner, I'm a manager, or I'm an embezzler. This text also has some things to say about things. As a matter of fact, the Bible has a lot to say about things and our management of them. Did you know that one-third of the teachings of Christ had to do with things management? He had more to say about how we handle things than he had to say about prayer. It's hard to pray to God while you worship things. This text implies that we're going to outlive things. Two men stand, were standing at the at the graveside of Vanderbilt, a man worth over $200 million, one of the men said to his friend, how much did he leave? And his friend said, he left it all. There's an old Chinese proverb that says, there are no pockets in funeral shrouds. There's, not, there's a not-so-old preacher's proverb that said, you'll never see a U-Haul trailer attached to the back of a hearse. And wasn't it Alexander the Great who conquered the worlds? Wasn't, wasn't, wasn't that the man who, who wept because he had no more worlds to conquer? I, I think it was. And he was the man who said, When I die, I want you to leave my... Much now, doesn't that suggest that God will supply our needs? There's a person with a greater imagination than mine, and he envisioned, he imagined God whispering to a little baby 
unborn child as he rested in the warm womb of his mother. And this is the way the conversation went in the man's imagination. Okay, little fella, it's time to get up. It's time to wake up. It's time to be born. And the little boy says, I I'm afraid of that. I'm warm here, and it'll be cold out there. I thought of that, said God. You know, I clothed the lilies of the field with clothes greater than Solomon's glory. I thought about that. And so I checked out of the commissary, a warm blanket. Somebody will wrap you with it when you get there. And the little fellow said, well, I'll be hungry. I've been fed by this card, and I've never wanted for anything for supply, for sustenance. You know, I thought of that, said God. I've got a couple of friends down on earth. One's name's Heinz and the other's name's Gerber. They're just dying to give you something to eat. And when you get there, fellow, he said, I thought about that. There'll be this thing called a bottle. Somebody will poke it right in your mouth. You'll have plenty to eat. I'll take care of you. You know, I fed the birds of the air. And he said, well, I'll be lonely there. I've had the warmth and the security of this womb. I'll be, war I'll be, I'll be lonely there. Nobody will be there to take care of I thought of that. You know, he said, there's a guy out there just outside this delivery room. He's got cigars poked down in his pocket. He looks crazy. And he's got one of these big dumb blue pins called It's a Boy on it. And he's just pacing up and down in this room outside where you are. And if you don't hurry and get there, he's going to wear out the tile in the floor. I'll take care of you, son. I thought of all of that. It sounds kind of like Jesus, doesn't it? When he said, seek first the kingdom of God and all these things that you need in life, I'll give, I'll add to you. It also implies in this text that the way we prove our love and our gratitude is, the way, is by the way we handle things. A guy came up to me the other day and he said, I want to know how you raise all that money down there at your church. I said, we don't raise any. We give it. I said, we never take a collection. He said, you never take a collection? I said, no, we never take a collection. We receive an offering. And we never sell anything. You never sell anything? We never sell anything. What we have is a group of people who have received of God's mercy and they're willing to give in response to that, in gratitude, in response to what they've received. And somebody said, how did you talk all those people into getting involved in that health ministry you started down there? I said, I twisted nobody's arm and I talked nobody into it. What I did was to tell, we have this ministry and God has been so good to us. Let us share with the rest of the world. And I had more people here than I needed to do the ministry. And so a man passed by one day and saw a fellow fall in the water, a little boy. And he was drowning and he dove in to save him. And he got him on dry land, took 10 minutes, gave him artificial respiration, brought him back to life. And the little fellow looked up and said, Oh, sir, thank you, thank you. He said, Oh, thanks, no thanks is necessary. Now you go prove that your life was worthy of saving. Upon a life I did not live, upon a death I did not die. Another's life, another's death, I stake my whole eternity. And I heard Frank Pollard tell about a wealthy man in his church who gave 90% of what he had to God. And the IRS couldn't believe it, and they came to investigate as we'd want them to. And they found it to be true, and the agent asked the fellow, how, do you, how are you able to do that? He said, well, I just shovel it out. And while I'm shoveling it out, God is shoveling it in. He's got a bigger shovel. There's a third thing this text implies, and that is this. 
that even though you can't take it with you, you can send it on ahead. Even though you go out of here with nothing you can carry in your hands, you can send something on ahead that is never able, you're never able to carry in your hands. That's what Jesus meant when He said, Lay not up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust doth corrupt and thieves break through and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt nor thieves break through and steal. What He's saying is this, what you have when you get there is what you sent ahead. So I came back from central part of Canada with a group of... Uh, Preachers, we'd been up there doing a crusade in central Canada. We had about a three-hour layover in Chicago, and I was messing around there in the airport, fighting off the higher Krishnas, wanting to put on a carnation. And I went up to this Coke machine, and I put a coin in there to get me a soda pop, and it rejected it. And so I put it in there again. The coin came back, and I pounded it a little bit, worked the coin return deal, put it back, rejected it again. Then I discovered that the quarter I was putting in the machine was a Canadian quarter. And Chicago's Coke machines won't receive Canadian coins. The wise Christian is the person who understands how to exchange, hear me now, how to exchange a wealth that he cannot keep for a treasure that he cannot lose. He's a person who has discovered the marvelous discovery of being a Christian. And he finds that it's more fun being saved than being lost. And he really trusts the Lord and he's really committed to Him in every way. And he finds that there's more pleasure in investing to win people to Christ and alleviate their misery than in buying to satisfy self. And he discovers that the ability to, to, to purchase a toy, whether it be a kitty car or a Cadillac, is not near so shrewd a move as the ability to change an earthly coin for a heavenly treasure. That's the best move that a man ever makes. There's one last word from this text, please. It's this, that there's some things you leave behind. There's some things you do leave behind. Have you ever noticed that people oftentimes forget our good and they remember in glaring, glorious, technicolor and stereo all of our failures. I pastored out in Seminole, Texas. It's out in the, in the sand dunes. I tell my guys on Wednesday, on, on Fridays, it's, it's where Moses struck the rock out there. And between Seminole and Seagraves in Gaines County, they, it's, if you've ever been on the highway from Abilene to El Paso and you've gone through Monahans, Texas and have seen all those sand dunes, that's the way it is out around Seminole until they got irrigation. It was like that. And so they went out between Seagraves and Seminole and built a golf course right out in those sand dunes. It's amazing. And they irrigated it and it's just like an oasis, a garden out there. And they asked Jack Nicholas, true story, and Arnold Palmer to come and... and for the dedication of Gaines County Country Club. I know you've played on it often. You're interested in this story. <laughs> and Jack Nicholas and Arnold Palmer came to Gaines County and to dedicate and, and to promote some, some membership sales of the Gaines County Country Club. It was a terrible sandstorm going on. If, if there's a sandstorm in Gaines County and you tee off on number three, you need to start looking for your golf ball in La Mesa because that's where you're going to find it, 45 miles to the east. <laughs> and they were playing this uh, in this 
terrible sandstorm, and they'd never seen anything like it. Some of my guys were there with them, walking around behind them. And Arnold Palmer was addressing the, the golf ball, and he chili dipped, just like you've seen him laughing at uh, uh, O.J. Simpson on that Hertz rent-a-car commercial. He hit the ground right behind the ball and didn't even touch it, and everybody laughed, you know, and everybody remembers that. If you play around on Gaines County, next time you play on Gaines County Country Club and you're going down to number three and you're with somebody from Gaines County, invariably it drives you crazy. Hey, right there's where old Arnold Palmer chili dipped that shot that time. And they don't remember that he drove the green on a par four, 400 yard uh, hole, and they don't remember he set the record of that Gaines County Country Club. But what they remember is that bad shot he made. I preached a revival in Roby, Texas, a little old town out near Abilene, and I was getting with it and tore the seat out of my pants. That <laughs> didn't, didn't, didn't rip down the seam. It just separated back here about the pocket. And I didn't even, <laughs> I didn't even know it. And everybody was laughing out there. And, and the reason they were laughing is because the choir was hysterical. They were, they were down in the seats just laughing away. And these folks were just looking up and they're saying, now there's something funny, but I wish I knew what it was. And I was just trying to think to myself, what did I say wrong? After it was over, they told me, they said, hey, come here, look. And he took me back there and then, oh my soul, they showed me in the mirror. That was on Thursday night. Revival ended on Thursday night. Nobody, the preacher didn't show up. I guarantee it was hard to go back. And if you go to Roby, Texas, and you say, hey, I know Gerald Tidwell, he's my pastor. Those folks will say, yeah, he's the guy. They don't remember that there were a lot of people saved during that revival. What they remember, they say, yeah, he's the guy who ripped his britches while he was preaching. They don't remember the good. They remember the bad. It's what Shakespeare was talking about when he said, that the evil we do often follows us while the good is interred with our bones. There are some things you leave behind. And if you'll turn sometime to the seventh chapter of this book of Ecclesiastes, it says in verse 1, what a man should leave behind. It said that a good name is better than final end. What we must leave behind Hear this, is the witness of a godly life. What we must leave behind is the witness that I did a good job handling the things that God gave me while I was here. What we must leave behind is the witness that because I came with nothing and I left with nothing, I sent some things on ahead and the things I left behind are the things that are going to benefit the world. Six people left one night, true story. Six teenagers left in a, in a car together. A girl was driving. And in this car, they were all kind of partying and having a good time. They wrapped their car around a tree. True story. And the driver was the only survivor. She was trapped for several hours before they could get her out. And she said that one by one she heard her friends die. And the last thing each one of them said, each one of them, she said she heard them saying, 
Oh, God, no. No. And I've listened to people die. And I've watched them. And I can tell you that the people I know who come to the end with that kind of despair are the people who have not done a good job with what they got when they got here. It's not that important what you have. It's not that important what life has given you. What is important is what you've done with it. It's not how important how much money you have or how much time you have or how much health you have or how many talents you have. The importance when our Lord returns and He looks at you, the important thing is what you've done with what you have. And some of us are going to hear Him say, well done. And some of us are going to say, Oh God, no. Would you pray? Heavenly Father, the most important time in anyone's life is the time when you confront us with our need. The most important moment in anyone's life, we understand, is the moment when you stand face to face and require of us decision. I pray that right now as we all search our heart, as we all deal with our own needs, our own lives, that you'll make us aware of what you want, make us aware of where we are, what you desire, and I pray that we will, we will be and do what you want, what you ask, yea, what you demand. I pray that you'll bless this moment of invitation, Father, that when we're through, we can say, I did what God wanted me to do with that ten minutes of time pray this in the name of Jesus for his sake. Amen. Look here quickly. God has given you his son, Jesus Christ, to be your Savior. Now, if you want to receive him this morning, accept him into your life and heart, he's, he, he's available. He's as near as your faith. He's as near as your heart, as your breath. But you can take this precious gift of the Son, and you can reject it. You can deny Him. You can turn away from Him. The decision is yours. I invite you to come and receive Jesus Christ as your Savior this morning. I ask you to come and be saved. The important thing when God faces us is, what did you do with Jesus? Have you ever really trusted Christ as your personal Savior? Have you ever really invited Him into your life? Boys and girls, men and women, today's the day to do that. If you'll confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart, God raised Him from the dead.
you'll be saved. The second invitation is for you to come this morning to place your life in the fellowship of the church. The best way God has chosen to get His Word out and the kingdom work done is through the church. You have time on earth to do God's will through the church. You'll be accountable for that. If God is leading you to place your life in the church, you need to do that today. Or maybe you just need to come to say, hey, I've taken and taken and taken and taken. And I've embezzled and I've cheated and I've stolen from God. And I want to come and I want to give my life to God. I want to commit myself to Him, my time, my energy is my talent. I want to give it to God, give it back to Him. I think you'll do that this morning. I sense God's presence. And I know, he'll, I know He's made known what He wants you to do. Now it's up to you. The ball's in your court. Some of you need to come right away and lead. Just your coming will encourage us. So let's do it. On the first stanza, on the first word while we stand, you come.